Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialize in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. Welcome to season two of Cancer Culture Podcast. This podcast is not just about cancer. It's about the people whose lives have been profoundly affected by it. Throughout this season, we will hear from individuals who have faced unimaginable challenges from the relentless battles against this disease to the heartbreaking losses, sincere, real stories that need to be heard. Cancer Culture Podcast is a place of refuge where we try to provide insight empathy and a space for authentic storytelling this podcast isn't an easy one and it's definitely not for everyone it is filled with moments of sadness reflection and inspiration but also highlights profound growth connection and hope i'm jackie cowan and i'm your host i'm definitely not a medical practitioner but a normal 27 year old chick who survived the hardships of cancer If cancer has touched your life in any way, whether you're a patient, a caregiver, or someone who has experienced the pain of losing a loved one, reach out to me, reach out to our guests, and let us be a source of strength and support for one another. With gratitude in our hearts and a shared commitment to understanding and compassion, let us honor the incredible individuals who have chosen to share their stories throughout season one and two. Through cancer culture, we can attempt to navigate the complexities of cancer, celebrate the triumphs and stand in solidarity with those who face this disease with unwavering courage. You're listening to another episode of Cancer Culture. I'm joined by Luann. I'm really excited for today's episode because I think you have an incredibly unique journey. You've done many things since your history with cancer. Would you mind elaborating on who you are and giving us a little bit of insight into the life of Luann? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jack. And thanks for inviting me onto the pod. I'm really excited to uh, be a guest, although a little bit nervous, even though I am a podcast host, I find being a guest a little bit nervy for me. My name is Luann and I have a history of breast cancer and breast reconstruction. I was diagnosed at the end of 2017, had active treatment through 2018, chemotherapy, uh, skin sparing mastectomy, radiotherapy. And then the year after in 2019, I had a a reconstruction, a single reconstruction, a DIEP, flap reconstruction, where tissue was taken from my tummy and used to reconstruct my breast. So that's my health history, which I'm not all about my health history, but what it has done, it's brought me to where we are today, which is chatting about the work that I do, because I now work as a patient advocate to help raise awareness of breast reconstruction options so that people can make a decision about what's right for them. Because when I was first um, diagnosed and I told it needed a mastectomy, I was told I needed a mastectomy by a doctor that then didn't tell me what my reconstruction options were. I had to wait a couple of weeks before I saw a specialist breast surgeon who then talked through those reconstruction options with me. And that time, of a couple of weeks of being told that I need a mastectomy by somebody who actually at that time couldn't have actually known that. They just made an assumption, but they told mm. me that. 
but not told what reconstruction options were. It was devastating for me. I had no idea what different types of reconstruction was out there. And when my specialist breast surgeon told me about different types of reconstruction, implant-based, or you can stay flat, you can have a reconstruction of the chest area, or DEP, which used your own tissue, that blew my mind. I'd never heard of the DEP flap reconstruction where an autologous reconstruction where your own tissue is used. So when I got through my first and second surgery and started to share my story on Instagram, I started to hear from a lot of people who didn't know all about their options and felt that they weren't necessarily presented with all those options when they had a diagnosis. And that's why I am now an advocate for reconstruction. I'd like to ask you if you could share your experience with breast cancer and the different stages of treatment and recovery that you went through. I was diagnosed the end of 2017 and I was 46 at the time and I had no signs or I hadn't noticed any signs of of concern in my breasts. I'd just generally been unwell and I saw Samuel Johnson on the TV. He was on the telly and his, his sister had just died, Connie Johnson from Love Your Sister. And from that, I learned that mammograms were free and I'd just been generally unwell. So I thought, you know what? Mammograms are free for over 40 rather. I'll go and take myself off for a mammogram. And I did. And I was absolutely shocked when wow. I was called back. Yeah. So they found something in the mammogram and I was called back for a biopsy. And I was really shocked. I, I just thought, I'd just go and get this done. I didn't have any concerns at all. And when I was called back, they actually showed me that under my breast, I had a little dimple. And I couldn't see that when I did my check in the bathroom because of the way the lights were and things like that. And I couldn't feel it. So when I had my diagnosis, it really was a complete shock because, and it is for everybody, everybody is shocked by their diagnosis, but I had no outward signs that I'd noticed. And yeah, then I was diagnosed with inf- invasive uh, pleomorphic globular cancer in my right breast. And I had chemotherapy over a few months time from mm. the end of 2017 through to, to 2018. And I had a skin sparing mastectomy, which is when they put an, an expander. They give you a mastectomy and they put an expander into your breast and they pump that with saline through different stages to create kind of a pocket, an empty pocket um, in your breast to have the DEP reconstruction later. And then I had radiotherapy after that. So that kind of really intensive, active treatment happened through 2018. That's a lot of different treatments as well. It, It is. Yeah. And a lot of different specialists that are involved in that as well. And I think that's one of the things that I found really difficult to get my head around about who did what. There was a, a specialist breast surgeon, there's a medical oncologist, a radio oncologist, a plastic surgeon. And that's before you start to look at maybe the other support around breast care nurses and allied health as well. I find it a really confusing time. I find oh, yeah. it yeah, overwhelming, kind of mm. new language, all these terms that you weren't used to. I'm originally from the UK. I didn't understand the healthcare system here, didn't know what was going on really. And I was terrified by it. I was really terrified by the diagnosis. I was terrified by the treatment, the side effects of treatment, the surgery. We use that word mastectomy, but that is a removal of part of the body and it's quite quite confronting. And I was devastated when I told I needed mastectomy. So yeah, it was a really scary time. Understandably, incredibly mm. tough. I guess we're fortunate we've got breast care nurses 
that you know so if you have a breast cancer diagnosis really you should have access to a breast care nurse in one form or another whether that's virtually or in in person and I was fortunate that I had in the hospital I was treated at they have this amazing program which I really loved it's called the early breast cancer program and it's a it's now an eight-week program where if you had a diagnosis you would go along and each week within that program there's a different topic that's covered yep from coming to terms with diagnosis oncology reconstruction exercise and nutrition and as well as there being people who'd had a diagnosis within that group which was facilitated by a counselor there was also other women who'd had a diagnosis who would do support mentors peer support that there would be a different topic each week and somebody a professional and these are leading professionals would come a medical oncologist would present one week a surgeon would present the next week and then that group had the opportunity to ask them general questions around that care um, and the treatments uh, it wasn't specific it's not a it wasn't a consult and that was one of the best things I did during my treatment that helped me navigate through my treatment, cut through to evidence-based information that was there, particularly around nutrition and all that kind of thing. And I guess they were part of my navigation of my diagnosis, that Mm. I was part of that group. And then that support was in the follow-up as well with the breast care nurse. And I feel very fortunate that I had that. It seems to me quite a unique initiative. I haven't heard it done anywhere else. I would love to hear more about it. But yeah, I think that's what helped me navigate Obviously, I was seeing my healthcare professionals, but then having this touch point each week and seeing women who'd got through it, that's mm. been massive to me. And I know that's what people say now I've got a diagnosis to see somebody who's been through it. It's really powerful. Absolutely. And I wanted to discuss how these treatments impacted your life and sense of identity during that time. I was working at the time as a contractor. I couldn't work any longer. So I was fortunate that I could focus on my treatment really when I'd Mm. finished work. So cancer didn't become my job, but getting me through my breast cancer treatment became my job. And that's what I was really fortunate to have access to a lot of allied health support. And I went on a mission really to get through each treatment path, the chemotherapy, the mastectomy and the radiotherapy. And I prehabbed for my all my surgeries and did rehab as well and I guess whilst I wasn't working then that kind of became my main focus the identity question is a really good question I think what it did for me is it when you were just talking there about being a positive person I think I'd always thought I might be a bit of a negative person uh, a bit of a glass half empty person but then when I had this diagnosis I I wasn't. (laughs) And I realized I was that positive person and I was that planning for let's plan for this good outcome and we'll go for that. I thought I would absolutely dissolve Mm. in a heap from it all. And don't get me wrong, I had those days. I call them like my Scarlet O'Hara days where I allow myself to flap to the floor (laughs) and it's all dreadful. And it might be an hour, it might be a day, it might be two days, but eventually tomorrow is another day and I pull myself up. But on the whole, yeah, my sense of identity was I became really proud of me and how I was reacting to this. I was became very assured. I knew what I wanted. I self-advocated very early on with my diagnosis. Some things that were said to me in very early appointments were 
not acceptable. And I respectfully raise them as issues with my healthcare professionals. So I self-advocated really early on. And I think I became really, I really knew what was right for me. I became very assured with what was right for me and what I needed and very assured and very, very confident about saying, I actually don't know this. Can you help me through this? Yeah. And I think, yeah, that sense of identity just became more confident in me and um, what it was that I needed and what it is that I wanted. But yeah, became proud of and I'm proud of how I got through whilst acknowledging that I was very fortunate to have some amazing support and have access to amazing support and amazing personal and allied health support as well as medical team. But I feel fortunate that there was lots of things that from my previous, you know, life that brought me to that point that enabled me to have that perspective. I think, yeah, I think very fortunate. It's just a shift off of the continuum that we were going to, we were going to be different people anyway. Mm. And it's just that cancer came into play for my kind of part in my life. Now I would be different. You know, it's coming on for six years since I've been diagnosed. So I would be a very different person, I think. Anyway, it's yeah. just that now it's yeah in the kind of cancer world, if you will. I think doing the work that we do, you've got your podcast, I've got mine and the advocacy work that we do. I think what I feel, and I don't know whether you feel this as well, Jack, but I can't remember a time in my life where cancer wasn't part of my day yeah, in some form or other. And that's bodily in how I feel because mm-hmm. I feel I have different pains. I have uh, cognitive challenges from treatments that I've had and that I'm on now I'm being in surgical menopause so there's that kind of embodiment of my diagnosis that continues which I can manage and I manage well but I think as well met such wonderful people in the community and they're now friends but that's part of our everyday discussion got lots of people in our network and our community who I love and we we are all supporting each other I, I talk about cancer probably every day I'm not saying I dwell on it about me or anything like that, but it's just part of my, yeah. I can't recall cancer not being part of my day any, anymore. I think that's what's so powerful about what we're doing is we're opening up this discussion and so are thousands of other amazing people. And we're mm. talking about how to manage that and how to deal with that and what that looks like living mm. with cancer. Yeah. How has your life been since your surgery and your treatment? I, my life's been good. Yeah, it's been good. It's been challenges like everybody has and particularly post-treatment, those challenges. I think since my Dieppe surgery, which is the reconstruction that I had in 2019, I've become more open about my of life, about life after cancer and living with these reconstruction surgeries. You mentioned how, there how for so many years you didn't really talk in this space or talk about your cancer or as widely as you do now. And I think when I was first diagnosed, I kept my diagnosis really private throughout 2018. And that seems there's a handful of people new in the UK and a handful that knew here. And I was really happy to do that. But since then, that might me being private about my diagnosis might seem like unbelievable when you look at my Instagram account where I've got my boobs out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I did, I kept it very quiet. And then when I had my Dieppe surgery in 2019, I posted for a hundred days under the hashtag hundred days Dieppe on Instagram. And I used that really as a little diary journal for me, really. It was very self-serving. And I just thought I'd put that out there. And what happened from that is that it became apparent that on Instagram, 
specifically. People weren't really writing about that type of reconstruction or they weren't aware of those reconstructions. We have some amazing support here in Australia and there's some great Facebook groups. But in that open, publicly open space of Instagram, it became apparent that some people hadn't even, like me, hadn't heard of the surgeries. But the 100 Days DF opened up my story a bit on Instagram. And that's where I started to speak to people who'd had surgeries or they're in the breast cancer community or the wider cancer community. I think that's what's wonderful about what you do and what and social media that we don't have to have had the same cancer to be able to relate. So yeah, that's I started sort of writing, yeah, every day for a hundred days on that and and that opened up my awareness to what was happening as well. Women were sharing stories with me. I knew about what my reconstruction had been like and my access to information about reconstruction and to surgeons people started to share their stories with me that were quite different in lots of different ways and obviously like you said we all have our individual story with regards to our cancer diagnosis and and as treatments and scans and things like that and tests become more individualized that's fabulous yeah what I'm hearing is so reconstruction just like treatment is very specific to the individual but what I was starting to hear is that women weren't getting necessarily access to all the information about their possible reconstruction options and didn't feel that they'd had the opportunity to make an informed uh, decision about their reconstruction so I had the DEP in 2019 and then COVID hit I had a second surgery in 2020 a second reconstruction surgery my third one in total to reconstruct my nipple and balance out my breasts because I had a single reconstruction and really just that again putting that on Instagram predominantly opened up my story to more and more people I had an oophorectomy and a hysterectomy at the same time as that reconstruction so I then went into surgical menopause and that widens up again yeah the community that you're involved with and I guess from that I've moved into advocacy through sharing my story on Instagram. What does that look like now? So what do you do on a day-to-day basis? On a day-to-day basis, I work as a freelancer helping create content in the in the breast cancer space and cancer space. And I also work independently creating content on Instagram in the podcasts and Instagram lives and do some blogging as well so that's really moved on from I think it was the end of 2021 and I connected with a reconstructive plastic surgeon who said you want to do an Instagram live now I'd never seen Instagram lives used (laughs) in Australia for like with with a surgeon I wanted to do it because I wanted to have open access to this information so that anybody could have a hear what this surgeon had to say because I just did not I don't like being on video or anything like that I was like oh I don't really I don't really want to do that but I'm really passionate about equity of access to information free access to information so I said yes and I devised the breast recon 101 live Q&A series which became a series of lives on Instagram with different surgeons where the audience could ask them questions around different things around reconstruction about implant-based reconstruction flat closure autologous own tissue reconstruction rehab prehab and nutrition so there that that ran through last year so that independent patient advocate led program was last year people were saying to me they really enjoyed that they got so much from it but it's an Instagram live you can't just listen to it in the background so then I launched um, a podcast at the end of last year which is Australia's first um, podcast about reconstruction after a mastectomy and that's called rewritten me and I've been very busy with that you think oh, I'll just do a podcast and I should, there's there nothing goes. just about it yeah <laughs> no. 
there's another 10 hours of my week that I, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's so worth it. It's 100% worth it. It is. It is. And I, I don't know why I didn't do it sooner. Again, it was that trepidation. And I think as well as not liking being on videos or audios and stuff like that, I do struggle with vocabulary as part of my post-treatment fallout. And I really, I prefer being a host than being a guest (laughs) because I can control that a bit more. So it's almost been a bit like a rehab for me as well, like a cognitive rehab. But I have, yeah, really loved it. I I chat to medical professionals, leading breast surgeons and reconstructive plastic surgeons, health professionals, but also people from our community. And I think that's like what you're doing is bringing these people together, sharing their stories. And I think that is where it is so worth it. I feel honored that people share their stories with me because it can be re-traumatizing. Absolutely. And Mm. it is incredibly special. When people Mm. open up about it, as you said, it can be triggering. And I I was going to ask you that in terms of your work with that and the podcast, is it triggering for you? It isn't usually. I'm usually quite good at wrapping myself. Saying that a podcast that I just recently recorded, I, I did cry some tears in it, but it was happy tears. It was with somebody who had a breast cancer diagnosis and, and thought there may be issues with their fertility, but they've recently had a baby and oh, after reconstruction. Yeah. So I usually quite good at wrapping myself up, but it does happen where I get triggered. So even thinking about coming on today before I was coming on, I was thinking about it and I knew we'd probably talk about my diagnosis and things like that. And actually it just took me back to it. But I guess those triggers, I can sit in those triggers are usually quite okay, if you will. I don't push them away. I sit with it. But it's it takes it does take mental work to look after your mental health. And I am cognitive of that. And I do I still see a psychotherapist, not as regularly as I used to. But yeah, that's all part of that. I feel really fortunate that women share their stories with me and men and that they allow me and they trust me to share that out there with our community then to pay it forward for those that fortunately are still coming after us. What we're talking about, people, what people are sharing and their emotions as well as our emotions. And then added into that, I think the community that we have and particularly through social media, that's a 24-7 community, right? I've got great friends all over the world. I'm t- talking with about cancer each day in one form or another it can be tiring. I said to my husband the other day, I feel like I haven't had a break or a, a holiday. And it isn't a holiday from the cancer, but even just from work, you're self-employed. It's every day. Yeah. You're working every day, basically. Like you're doing the podcast. There's always something to do, isn't there? Every day. I think the first step is to acknowledge, like you have, that we need to be aware of it. We need to be conscious of it. And we need to be looking after ourselves. Water can't come from an empty well. Have you always been this invested in research? Yeah, I think so. I think I, when I was diagnosed, I was working part-time under contract, but I was also doing my second master's and I was doing a master's in information studies because as I said, one of my passions is equity of access to information. So I knew from my academic studies and from that particular master's, it was really important to to really interrogate the information that was that I was consuming and that Mm. I was finding when I was researching to be sure about how old was it, who'd written it, why had they written it, what perspective was it coming from. So I had that already. It was made very clear to me when I was chatting to my, my breast surgeon, for instance, 
and my medical oncologist, the term evidence-based and standard practice and things like that was very much used a lot. This is what the evidence shows and that kind of language. So I feel like they were reinforcing that as well. And then I think what happened is when I started to research breast cancer and how you can cope with side effects and how you can support yourself for prehab or rehab or recovery, I found the don't eat sugar advice cause cancer or you shouldn't eat sugar after you've had a breast cancer diagnosis or you should do this or you should do that. And I struggled to find sort of evidence that supported some of those, let's call them myths that are out there. Yeah. And that's when I also... I was trying to do the best that I could and I could only really focus. And that's where I knew what was right for me. I needed to just focus on kind of one path that was the main path I was going to take. And that was the evidence-based path. I did mind trying something else if it didn't interfere or cause an issue or a contraindication with what medical treatment I was having. I became very conscious as well. There was only so much that I could do. And if I really tried to do and listen to all these different things that weren't exactly shored up, by evidence-based results, I would just go a little bit crazy. So I just tried to do the best. But yeah, I guess that's where I arrived at it. My medical professionals really always using the evidence-based, this is the latest evidence kind of line. It was really them educating me around that. They've obviously seen lots of people go down different pathways. What were some of the things that you tried? Look, I had a spreadsheet, right? This is where I know. I love a spreadsheet. (laughs) I found some resources that were out there, particularly the Cancer Council, some of their booklets and BCNA's, it was called the Journey Kit. I think it might be an app now and the early breast cancer program that I was on. I took a lot of the information from those and I tried a lot. Just some things during chemotherapy. So very tricky around chemotherapy, what you try, but I saw a nutritionist. So I really worked with a nutritionist to try and support myself through, through chemo. But one of the best things that I did was I saw an exercise physiologist and that was a game changer. I believe for me, I was really fortunate. Again, my breast surgeon, evidence-based, you need to be getting exercise will help. And she essentially scripted me. She wrote a script out. You need to go and you need to do this each week. So I found an exercise physiologist and throughout chemo, I saw them on a one-to-one basis three times a week, even on the morning of chemo. Okay. And again, that was the evidence that had shown that exercise could help with regards to managing the side effects of chemotherapy. And I think they were just waiting for the papers to be published where it showed that actually it could increase the efficacy. I think it was about that time. So I was really fortunate and I saw an exercise physiologist who specializes in oncology and particularly supporting women with a breast cancer diagnosis. And that's one of the things that I continued all the way through, uh, through prehab for my surgeries and rehab. I have no doubt that exercise helped me tolerate chemo as well as I did. So I did exercise. I walked every day. Walking was my savior, really. I was fortunate. I lived at the time around Sydney Harbour, walked, yeah, walked there. Psychotherapist, I got a psych help and that really helped me and I still see them on an ongoing basis. And talking about that, getting a great GP, I think is, if you can, is just make a huge difference to to navigating everything I think Mm. and I yeah I really used them particularly preparing for for surgeries Mm. but again always I always looped in the specialist that I was dealing with at the time we have different ones that come into play don't we your medical oncologist and then your radio oncologist and I always told them what I was been advised and checked in with them before I took anything 
Okay. Um, Which is good advice. Yes. I think, yeah, I think you need to be checking in with your team if you're going to be taking something. And I used to triangulate where I'd maybe look at to get <laughs> my support from. So there'd be the evidence base, there'd be what I wanted for my own support and what I believed. And then the I would ask the patients what they'd done but I would never run off and then do something that I just read in a Facebook group that somebody done without checking in with all those kind of specialists I triangulated and brought those three pieces of information together to then go and ask my specialist this is what I want to do what do you think yeah yeah really interesting way of managing it as well which I think is a testament to who you are and the way that you work (laughs) I think I was just I was just so scared. I was so terrified that the medicines that I was taking or the surgery that I was having or the radiotherapy that I was having, I wanted to give them the best chance. Yeah. I came from that angle myself of do no harm. I want to try things that will, they're not alternative, they need to be complementary, yeah. not tra- contraindicatory, <laughs> if yeah. you will. Yeah. And I really, I was so scared. I guess I tried to, I think, Along the way, I try to think the decision I'm making now, will I be happy with this decision when I look back in retrospect? Yeah, we never know, do we? But we have no idea. Yeah, but that's what I try to think is, am I good? Am I good with this decision? Yeah, and the things that you have a say in definitely should be thought through. So I, I agree with that because a lot of things on these journeys are out of our control and a lot of big decisions sometimes are made for you in some circumstances. I understand and I respect that process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And I, I would go and I would go and Google and look up the drug that had been recommended for me or, and go back with questions of, okay, you recommended this and why not this in a Mm. really respectful way? Or can you explain why I'm not having this? Or can you explain this paper? I've read this paper and I don't, you're the medical professional and I don't really understand what this paper is telling me. Could you tell me what the latest research is saying? And I was really fortunate that on the whole, not always, (laughs) on the whole, my medical professionals were open to that dialogue. Okay. Which is good. Not always, but mostly. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. So are you still getting checkups? Is that something that is a part of your life? And will that always be the same? And and what's the medication like that you're on now? Mm. Yeah. So I've, I no longer see my breast surgeon because I was five years out of diagnosis last time I saw her. So that was the last time I see the breast surgeon. Um, I'm still seeing my medical oncologist because I still on taking medication. I take an aromatase inhibitor (laughs) and I will take that for the next another two years in that it's difficult to say, how are you on that? Because Mm -hmm. I've never not been on a hormone therapy since finishing treatment. So I had radiotherapy after radiotherapy in 2018, I went on to tamoxifen and then I was on tamoxifen until I had my oophorectomy in 2020. And that's when I've gone on to the aromatase inhibitor. And I'm in surgical menopause. Now, I have lots of fallout and I don't know of side effects. And I can never, never quite understand where is that from? Is that from my cancer treatment? Is that from the surgeries that I've had? Is that from just the sheer kind of fear of everything <laughs> that's gone on in my life? Is it surgical menopause or is it the medication? I, it's really hard to work out what, and I won't know until I finish the medication in two years, whether they're yeah. feeling like a hundred year old 
in my hips and my back. I don't know whether that's the medication or whether that's just uh, me for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm going well though. I tend to manage it quite well. Um, but I put a post up recently on Instagram about fatigue mm. because I'd had a day of trying to, as I said, in, in the middle of moving and a day of packing boxes up and things like that. And it just absolutely wiped me out. And I put something on Instagram about fatigue and the amount of messages from the community, from people suffering from fatigue, whether they're recently out of active intensive treatment or then a number of years down the line, it's a real, it's a real issue and and a life-changing issue. People are just like me. Yeah. Just saying, I can't trust myself to do something for a full day and then be ready to go out at night. So yeah, it's, it's challenging, but I manage it well, but I find it frustrating. You then become like this bit of a test yourself don't you you're trying to let's drop this and see if it's any better but although I'm finding it frustrating I don't necessarily find it totally debilitating I'll have those bad fatigue days yeah so I guess I haven't felt that I need to take any of the medication out of play or swap Mm. it around because it I can tolerate it I know women who have really real challenges with some of this medication and they need to swap it out or they make the decision to stop it which I think it's something that needs to be talked about with the medical professionals I always get concerned when I read in Facebook groups that somebody's just decided to stop their medication without talking to their doctor yeah but yeah I tolerate it I tolerate it I get a bit foggy I get easily overwhelmed so this week with the move it's something I talk to my psychotherapist about this window of tolerance. You've got this window and a kind of, if everything's going okay, you bounce within that window. And then if something happens that can take you out of that window of tolerance and you can go hyper or you can absolutely drop out. And I find that for my cognitive ability as well, I have a window of tolerance. And if something happens, it really changes that, whether that's stress mm. or changes like a, where you're living like I am now that really impacts my my cognitive tolerance if you will and I yeah I find things then become really overwhelming easily overwhelmed I I have to be really quite structured in what I'm doing even though I liked spreadsheets before they are now things that I absolutely need I need lists I Mm. need reminders on my phone so yeah it's kind of fogginess forgetfulness short-term memory issues but not on word association I forget words like I'll say one word instead of another and things like that which is really tough when you're doing podcasts and Instagram lives but yeah I struggle with those things quite a lot I find that one of the most frustrating things and actually debilitating things is my memory Mm. and vocab issues and Mm. being able to retain that and different names and different medical information it's a lot it is yeah and with surgeons as as well and keeping track of because amazingly intelligent people who are <laughs> leading in their field and I'm like oh my gosh because I the podcast as well I don't have anyone who edit it edits it or produces it so I'm trying to keep tally on all the sound issues and things like that <laughs> but yeah it is I I do find it really frustrating I can the forgetfulness I can think oh I need to do this thing and I can reach for a pen to write it down and I've forgotten it yeah, it's that, it's that instant. It's almost like a superpower because it is that instant. <laughs> and, but it's like with my psychotherapist, we, she's, she says, is there, can we make it, can we be kinder to yourself about it? Can you laugh at it? Because it is a word association. It's almost Jennifer Lawrence is in the American Hustle movie and she calls a microwave a science oven. Like it's like that. Like I tried <laughs> a phoned up for, to make a reservation for dinner and it was like, can I have a food appointment? Like kind of. 
and it's just yeah just so sometimes it's funny but uh, a lot of the time yeah it's frustrating isn't it it You're is like, frustrating yeah yeah and I think for me as well I think surgical menopause the more I learn about menopause is the more I think that's in play yeah for me as well but yeah I find it tricky I find it tricky on the podcast to yeah sometimes to just really focus focus in but I do my best and then you put so much pressure on yourself and then mm. you tend to stuff it up even more like yeah. when I'm doing the brekkie show sometimes and it's live radio mate yeah stop stressing out about it because the more you stress out about it the more you're going to stuff up you and I have spoken about relationships before and the importance of them I wanted to talk about your support network and what that looked like what role did they play and uh, how your relationships have been since your cancer journey Okay. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed, I only told a very small amount of people and I was actually quite strategic. This might sound a little bit awful now, but I was quite strategic in it because I wanted to keep my diagnosis private. And one of the reasons was that I'm originally from the UK, I'm in Australia now, but there was a a family member in the UK who'd been diagnosed with cancer and was very open about it, but it seemed to me like everybody knew quite personal details. And I didn't really want to be that person I didn't want people to know all these details about me so I kept myself very private and I thought okay in Australia who am I and I specifically thought who who am I going to tell who am I going to share this story with and how can they help me with regards to this and that was whether it was emotional support or whether they'd lived here longer and they might know surgeons or whatever and I reached out specifically to a group of people who I trusted to keep it private and who I trusted would be able to share with me things that might be able to help me or they would be able to support me. So I did that for here and in the UK and family, of course, very close family knew. And they were my support network through active, intense active treatment, as they call it, which was through through 2018. I think my biggest support was my husband, Vinny. Mm. I feel closer to him now than I've ever done. He was pretty amazing. And I felt for him, I felt the pressure for him because I had to finish work and he was just in a six months probation for a new job. And he was just so worried that he was needed to take time off and things like that to help me with through some of the treatments and surgeries. But he was pretty spectacular really in in the support that he's given me in lots of different ways. It's almost like that existential threat, that life threat brought brought us together. But it's really interesting. I, there's, I have some memories from that that I think, oh my gosh, do you remember that time? And I was like, do you remember that time you were sat on the sofa and I came over to you and I just kissed you on the lips. It wasn't a pash, it was just a lip kiss. And it was just so intense. I said, I feel like that I've got an imprint of that kiss on my soul. And it's such a beautiful memory for me. And then he doesn't remember it at all. <laughs> And I just think it's really interesting, isn't it, that we all take out of that journey the things that mean most to us and got us through. I had that really close group of of friends and family that helped get me through, which was phenomenal. And then I think opening up with 100 Days Dieppe on Instagram, then the Instagram community then helped get me through the recovery from the Dieppe and the second surgery that I've had and my life after reconstruction 
they have been phenomenal. And that's been people in the Instagram community. That's not just breast cancer, not just Australia. It's different types of cancers. We do have a shared lived experience Mm. of hearing those words. It's cancer, I think. So yes, I've made new friends that I've met in real life as well from Instagram. Um, It's actually bloody gorgeous. Yeah. Some of these relationships that have stemmed from such horrific times in our life. It absolutely is. And these are people that have helped get me through the worst of times. Yeah. And they also celebrate the best of times as well. And I think that's what's really, that's what's really beautiful, I think, is that everybody, as we've talked about, has their individual diagnosis, their treatment path, individual ways of responding to that, their own personal circumstances. And some have better health outcomes than others and are coping or dealing better than others. I feel very fortunate that I have no evidence of disease now. But in that community, there's people who may not have such a good kind of health outlook or prognosis as I have, still celebrate the milestones that I have. And I think that's what's really wonderful in the community that we've got is that, yes, they are there for the worst of times, but we can be really open in the bad times. And we could be really open in the good times and there is no judgment that happens there and people are there genuinely, yes, genuinely there for you. And the beauty of it as well, being social media, it's like a 24-7 kind yeah. of support group that you've got there. Yeah, and I really had one of my closest friends that I had. She, she connected with me on Instagram because she was searching for Dieppe Flap Reconstruction on Instagram and now we are the closest friends and talk every day. It is beautiful. You know, it's a whole adage isn't it of it's a club that nobody wants to be in but once you're in that club you will get the most wonderful support yeah and I think if people are listening to this podcast or your podcast or what have you it is an important reminder to reiterate that there is support there even online and it what you do with that can be completely different to maybe what you or I would do with that for example Instagram wasn't necessarily a thing when I went through my diagnosis, but that was okay because I had support face-to-face and that was pleasant as well. But now there is this part of the internet and there is this part of our lives that exists, which is fantastic. And it is free and it might be daunting at first, but there is an entire community. There are millions of people out there who are going through somewhat of a similar experience to you and people don't have to be alone. No, they don't have to be alone. We are here for you and whenever you're ready and you might be not ready now for me because I kept my diagnosis private initially Instagram wasn't a place that I went on to because I didn't want anyone to to know and I used closed Facebook groups which were amazing and amazing support for me and I know that some of the friends that I had they shared the details of other women who'd had a who'd had a a diagnosis at the time of my diagnosis and I just wasn't ready to chat to them at that time So I think that's the thing. And it's whenever you're ready. And sometimes you lurk online (laughs) and that's okay. That's actually been shown, I think, in some research with regards to cancer support online is that's what people tend to do initially. They lurk, which sounds a bit weird, but it is a term that's used. Yeah. And nobody expects you to do anything or to reach out. What What that looks like for you is completely different from the next person. And some people don't talk about their diagnosis whatsoever or their situation at all. And that is absolutely okay too. But if there are people that feel as though they would like to reach out to a broader community, but they're not sure where to start, 
there there is support out there and there yeah. are people that will help and guide you. Yeah, absolutely. And just want to have a bitch about something. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, we are here if you need us. I wanted to talk about Brava. Ah, oh, yeah, Brava Arts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Brava Arts. Thank you. That's yeah, all right. Thanks for asking about it. It's So Brava Art is a social media campaign that I launched last year. Many people will probably know that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. There is actually a Breast Reconstruction Awareness day in that month that is very little known it's been going for a number of years I think it might have started in Canada but yeah breast reconstruction awareness day is the third Wednesday of October which always makes it a little bit tricky and this year it is the 18th of October and it's about raising awareness of reconstruction options after a a mastectomy but not many people know about that day and it's known as bra day I was chatting to some surgeons and breast care nurses didn't know about this day And thinking about the experience that I'd had where women had shared with me their stories that they weren't aware of all their possible options for reconstruction. And that is what the research has shown in Australia, that access to information as well as access to certain types of reconstruction, there are barriers and there are challenges to that throughout the country. Last year, I launched a social media campaign to promote Bra Day, and it's using the free exercise app Strava which is something that you can install on your phone, whether you're running, you're walking, kayaking, skiing, cycling, all those kind of activities. And it allows you to GPS track that. So you can see on a map what route that you took. There is something called Strava art where people plan their routes in a shape. So it looks like a little piece of art. Um, There's some quite intricate ones uh, and there's some quite simple ones. So I brought that concept of Strava Art together to raise awareness of Bra Day called Brava Art. And last year, we asked people to make Brava Art. It was the first of its kind campaign here, as I understand, in Australia. And it's the first time it's been done. And we asked people to make and or draw Brava Art to promote Breast Reconstruction Awareness Day to promote Bra Day. And they did. And they used it to, to make art that simple art in the shape of a love heart which was great I walked a little love heart it doesn't take a lot to do I made a little love heart and it's 300 meters I just walked around a park and that was really easy then we had somebody in the UK who cycled a 60 kilometer part around Liverpool in the UK and then people did things kayaking and running walking somebody actually did some rollerblading all these different types of activities and made amazing shapes and some of them were creative basic that they might do people throughout the world took part in america asia europe and the uk and then some of the people made brava art that was in reference to breast reconstruction or to reconstruction they made boobs were obviously very popular (laughs) breasts were popular but then they wrote the word for instance diep a reconstructive plastic surgeon he built a little walk that did that and spelt out those words so the campaign is to ask people to make brava art in whatever shape you want, it doesn't have to be boobs, it can be anything you like. And use Strava to create Brava art and then tag it on Instagram and share it to raise awareness of reconstruction in Australia and the rest of the world. Awesome. And so that's the 18th. Yeah, it's the 18th of October this year. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing some activity all the way through that week. A Wednesday isn't a great day for campaigns. 
yeah. going to be doing stuff all the way through that week. But if you follow the Brava Art official Instagram account, we'll be showing you how to make Brava Art. And there's also going to be some challenges throughout that week there. It's bringing together exercise, which as we know, is such important for anyone, particularly mm. if you've had a diagnosis and are in treatment, do what you can, yeah. is to bring that together. And But I think also... You're thinking that mental health, and we've been talking about triggers, Jackie. Breast Cancer Awareness Month for me is a really triggering month. And I know it is for a lot of our breast cancer community. A lot of people come off social media. So mm. it's saying we can do some other activities that might be able to help distract from that whilst raising awareness. And it is, there's no fundraising. It's just fundraising. There's nothing like that. You can do it on your own, do it with a group of people. I know people are going to be doing some group walks and, thing, and things like that. So yeah, I'm really excited for it this year. Mm-hmm. I was very excited last year, but even more so this year. Got a lot of interest from people who, oh, some of the art that was made last year was phenomenal. Somebody kayaked the word bra across Lavender Bay, which is <laughs> outside of Sydney Harbour. And I was just like, that is mind blowing. I think it's really about that supporting each other as well. There might be some other organizations or some other advocates that are doing other work that's not related mm. to breast reconstruction. It's about amplifying all the work and all the good, amazing work that's happening in our community. So looking back on your journey, is there something that you're very proud of or something important that you've really taken away from this? I know you'd asked me about this beforehand and I was thinking about that and I was looking back on what I'd said and I think I'm proud I got through and how I got through I plodded through it (laughs) I often talk about walking helped me mentally and physically but it helped me get through everything and it's the analogy I think of getting through my treatment I I plodded through it Hmm. and I'm just pleased that I could and I'm really proud of how I did my cancer that sounds really I don't know it sounds a bit odd but I am really proud how I did it because I really did think that I'd probably fall apart if something like that happened to me and as I said I did have those moments just getting through that's I just I just think a cancer diagnosis is is devastating the treatments are harsh the advances that we've got are amazing but it's still it's still tough the surgery that I had and the surgery that a lot of people have for different types of cancer they are life-saving and they can be life-changing for reconstruction that's amazing. And we can still celebrate that, but mm. let's still acknowledge that it is really tough. Yeah, We hear, oh, it'll only be a day surgery or you'll only be in for two days or whatever, but that doesn't take away from the fact that these treatments and surgeries that we have are really hard for us. And I think I'm proud of how I got through, how I plodded. Yeah. I'm proud of you too. Oh, Thank you, lovely. And you, when I when I saw your podcast was launched and the vibe of it, I was like, oh my gosh, somebody's doing this. This is great. And it well, goes both ways. What you're doing is absolutely incredible. And even for the toughest of people, I think it is still really hard to live with what we've been through on a day-to-day basis. And I've been through that, so I can get through anything. But it's mm. still, yeah, it still fucks you up a little bit. It does fuck you up because it is all a bit of a mindfuck really, isn't it? When you think of those treatments, they're like, I wasn't unwell in any way from my breast cancer, but the treatments made me unwell. (laughs) And yeah, it is, that is a a mindfuck. And just knowing that you can get through it and see that others have got through it and know that they're there for you is something 
I want people to know. I ask this at the end of every podcast because I think it's important because people that are listening to this podcast, they may have just found out themselves that they're unwell or a loved one or their best mates, parents or something like that. And I think it is important that we pass on advice to one another. So if there is anything Mm. vital that you could pass on to somebody, what would that be? I think thinking back to my diagnosis, the the podcast that I have is called Rewritten Me. And the reason it's called that is it's a flip from what my Instagram account used to be called, which was Unwritten Me, because I felt that my cancer diagnosis was unwritten by it mentally and physically, emotionally. It really devastated me. And I just kept assuming the worst initially. And I quickly realized that there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to cancer whether you're waiting for your results, whether you're waiting to see what type of side effects you're going to have, whether you're waiting to see what the outcomes of surgery are. There's lots of unknowns. And I realized that if I kept assuming the worst when I didn't actually know the results of those unknowns yet, yeah, that that would just destroy me. I would, I just could not cope with that. So this un- being unwritten, I heard a song called Unwritten. And basically when you listen to the lyrics of that song, today is where your book begins, the rest is still unwritten, prompted me to flip that meaning of unwritten for me and to try my best. It doesn't always work, but try my best that until it's actually happened, I am not going to assume that has happened. Mm. It's unwritten. Until I know something for sure, then I'm not going to assume the worst. Today is where my book begins. The rest Mm. is still unwritten. And I think that's what I would try to pass on as some advice really you probably hear your medical team tell you it's take one one step at a time and I think they're absolutely right we can only deal with what we know at that point whilst trying to plan for some of the other options that are through there and it wasn't always that I was assuming the best it's just that I wasn't making any assumptions whatsoever and I think that would be my advice that yeah take it one step at a time until it's happened. It had, take it one step at a time. And the other thing is breathe. I know that sounds really silly, but sometimes I was so scared. They say, take it one day at a time or one hour at a time. I Sometimes it was one breath at a time. Hmm. Regulating my breathing literally would really help me through. Just breathe. Just breathe. Yeah. Hmm. I can remember going for my first chemo And I was really fortunate. I was just down the road from my hospital so I could get the bus to chemotherapy Mm. and walking to the bus stop. And I was crossing the road and I stopped halfway across the road. And I just thought, I can't go on. I can't physically stop. And I thought, and I was just, if I don't put one foot in front of the other now, I'll never do it. And it was that big breath that centered right down to my core and then one foot in front of the other plodding as I said I just plodded and I think that's it's that big breath and then on we go right yeah on we go really appreciate you and I think what you're doing for the community is beyond important but also special and would really make a significant difference to a lot of people's lives so you should be incredibly proud of yourself it's still important to acknowledge that in order for you to get to this position and to be an advocate of such a tough thing you've gone through your own really difficult journey and I think you're incredible so thank you so much for everything that you do oh thank you darling thank you so much and same back at you I appreciate you all the work that you're doing and as I said when I saw your podcast (laughs) come out I was like oh this is just my vibe this is just (laughs) like and sharing these stories thank you for inviting me on as a guest really honored to be on there on here
My pleasure. And if people want to get in contact with you, are they welcome to do that? They absolutely are. My Instagram is Luan Laurie Woods, but it's yeah. easier to follow it in the show notes. And yeah, and rewritten me is the is the podcast. But if you find me on Instagram at Luan Laurie Woods, then you'll have the links will be to Brava Art as well. 